0: Why Why Welcome to another episode of Ask Canadian Six. I'm so excited to have with us today our new co-host Carmen Condola, all the way from Edmonton. Carmen, say hello to the people.
1: Why uh, Why you Very excited to be here. Just um, excited to uh, join the podcast and um, you know see where this adventure takes us.
0: Yeah, you got some big shoes to fill. So we've had some awesome guest co-hosts. We've had just on for a while hosting. Last time, last episode, we had uh, doctors on talking about doing a COVID Q&A. But I did want to start with today, just introducing you to folks and letting them get to know you a little bit. So do you want to talk about um, your role with the World Psych Organization and maybe what brought you to the WSO?
1: So I am currently vice president for Alberta uh, with the World Sick Organization. Previously was director of administration. Um, you know, first joined the the World Sick Organization many many years ago when I had attended uh, a few events that were being held here. You know, in Edmonton by the World Sick Organization. In particular, I remember um, Prashant Pushan came did a tour of Canada. Uh, and got to hear him and got to hear him talk about, you know, some of the, the fight for justice after 1984. Um, and it was just refreshing to hear people, uh, you know, who, who were able to talk about these issues um, in, in certain types of nuance. Um, it really excited me about what this organization was doing. Obviously, we always learn about, you know, the Multani case uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, your, uh, when you have a legal background. In, in my day job, I am a lawyer. Uh, but that case where the WSO was an intervener is so so important for us as Sikhs as in Canada. And when it comes to religious accommodation, that, you know, that that really put the WSO on the radar for me, not having any kind of a family connection to the organization, but more so drawn to it from a key perspective, but also from, um, you know, the advocacy perspective.
0: It's amazing. And I think that, so we, I'm really excited that you're going to bring a legal lens to this because we're going to touch on uh some topics today that that might help with and also really uh, glad to have the Edmonton perspective because we get a lot of West Coast, we get a lot of Ontario, we get the occasional Quebec and Ottawa and there are six all over Canada. So it's the the varied sick Canadian perspectives are always great. In today's episode, we're going to talk about um, the the ongoing issue with the Karpan in Australia. We're going to talk about the recent decision that came down in Canada on Bill 21 and what WSO's next steps are. We're going to talk about an increase in hate crimes, including the unfortunate attack on the family in London, Ontario. And finally, we're going to wrap up with talking about what we are doing this Canada Day, knowing that by the time you listen to this, it's going to be past Canada Day, but just some reflections as Canadian Six, adding to many different conversations that are out there Kerbahn in Australia. In Australia, there were a couple of students. One who stabbed another one with his garban. and the school board there, while they had for many years allowed people to wear garbans, issued a blanket ban on the wearing of garbans. The World Sikh Organization uh, got involved and was working with the community out in Australia to show how we had accommodated the karpan over here, and as you mentioned in the Multani case, and they proposed, the school board in Australia proposed what they thought was kind of a middle ground, where the karpan had to be soldiered shut at a certain point or had to be wrapped in fabric, and the World Sikh Organization responded to this saying that it's unreasonable and unacceptable. So I'm going to read a little bit of the quote from our president, the Jinder Singh. The proposed policy is more restrictive than any Gurban policy we are aware of, and it requires that the Kirpan be fundamentally altered. What do you think about this? Uh, I mean, you were just talking about the Multani case. What do you make of the reaction of the school board in Australia, and what do you think their next step should be?
1: So I, it's kind of interesting. You know, I've got, a, I've got a very brief connection to Australia in that, you know, I have some family down there. Um, back in 2000 I had the opportunity to go to Australia for uh, the Olympics uh, I was about 12 years old and my grandfather took my brother and I and thought that this would be a great opportunity to go travel um, and go attend an Olympics so I, I remember this experience I had there which I think really kind of opened my eyes to um, you know some some advocacy and it's that I wasn't really aware of we were going to go watch um, the Indian national team play a field hockey game and so we we got on the metro and there was a all these things who got on with us you know there was a particular area that we were staying in in sydney um, and there were quite a few aprasek um were living in that space so kind of going to the game on the on the special olympic train you, you were packed with sayings and quickly realized none of them were there to support india and I, I i didn't really understand this you know you're 12 years old you're kind of naive you don't really understand um, a lot of what what uh, national politics or or sick politics looks like later on When we get to the game, you know, they're all yelling um, at, you know, somebody, KPS Gill. And years later, I realized that, you know, KPS Gill, obviously the butcher of Punjab, he was the chef de mission for the Indian national team when they went Mm -hmm. to Australia. Um, And so you had this huge contingent of Apre Six who had traveled to go protest um, his involvement and also go protest uh, the, the Indian national team. But, you know, at the time, I kind of was under the assumption that the populations of six in Australia must have been similar to Edmonton um, or similar to at least Canada. But, in fact, it's actually been a lot less than that. You know, while migration in Australia dates back 150 years for six, it's only in the last decade that you've really seen numbers increase. And, I mean, it's been a drastic increase. So, back when I was there, there was something like 12,000 or 15,000 six. And today you're you're you know you're above one hundred and fifty thousand, so you can see how in twenty years there's been an explosion in in the population of six uh, in Australia, and I think a lot of that goes to the the lack of understanding that you're seeing from you know the Department of Education in Australia, um, you know, and, and Australia's had a lot more of a. A difficult history when it comes to dealing with its own, you know, um, reckoning and its own um, identity. When I was there in 2000, I remember, you know, there was this huge um, attempt to try to uh, accommodate or or try to recognize Indigenous people and Indigenous um, athletes at, at the time during the Olympics. But you could tell that there was a real tension that existed between kind of what was white Australia and minorities. You know, and, and you could you could understand that there was this underlying tension that in Canada, I mean, while we still have, um, is not as overt in a lot of ways. And so coming back to the actual Carpan case, given now that there's this explosion of a population, a lot of it being students, um, this is something that now Australia is having to, to grapple with. And... Maybe something that, you know, as Canadians, we've dealt with 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So they're really on the precipice of dealing with a lot of these issues. And, you know, for for us in Canada, the Multani case is really, um, you know, as established law, something that we're able to look back to and utilize when it comes to situations like this, where they're looking at how to do an accommodation. The problem is, in Australia, you don't have a leading case similar to Multani that gives guidance to the Department of Education in how they should actually address this issue. And I think that's really the gap is, you know, a lot of these issues haven't been tested in the courts in Australia. And that means that, you know, a Department of Education is left to kind of fill this in. And and, and that's, you know, that now we're seeing a struggle because, well, who represents our community there, right?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think when you look at who six are, where. If you don't live it from the inside or if you don't know it in a familiar way, if I take a step back, it is weird. And I can understand why um, someone insisting that it's their religion that they wear a dagger could be – if it's not in your ethnocentricity, if it's not in your worldview, it can be very jarring. One of the things that the Jinder Singh said in his statement is that there have been several incidents involving the misuse of scissors in recent years at NSW schools. However, no attempt has been made to ban the use of scissors in schools. And this is a point that I've heard Balpri Singh make as well. Um, Our lawyer at WSO, who was also asked to get off of via rail train here in Canada because of his karban. The The reason that we try and ban garbans is very much linked to our perception of the person who's wearing them. Uh, so he uses the example of someone got onto the train and they were a hockey player and they had skates. They would have two blades that are bigger than the one karban that he's carrying. Um, or if you're in a classroom and you have scissors in the classroom, they're definitely more dangerous than the garban that's in its mian. There's something to be said about the perception of who's wearing it that we're not owning. And when you make that a real part of the conversation, it matters. And when you talk about wearing the karban as a sincerely held belief, we have a framework, a legal framework in Canada that we were able to um, push back against and use and sup- to support ourselves. And it, there are these things that we feel like are just absolutely inherent to our Sikhi. And of course, we should be able to do them. But when you actually, when they get tested, and when you have to explain them with the laws of the land that you're on, it's it's definitely a whole other beast. So this is still playing out in real time um, in Australia. So they, the new Krapan policy was open for comment up until June 25th. And I guess we're waiting for next steps now.
1: Yeah and, and and let's go back to talking about Australia as a nation, right? Um, this is a country that had a white Australia policy up until the 1970s. Um, you know, going back to the migration of sex and to Australia, you, you saw, you know, in the in in you know, about 10 years ago in 2009 where there was multiple assaults against Indian students, and and many of those, and majority of those, being sex, uh, there is still, I think, um, in Australia itself, a lot of tension and a lot of racism that that is pushing back against sex. So, you know, in that framework, when when they are evaluating what they think that you know uh, the position should be when it comes to accommodation, it starts from a position of, uh, you know, other right, and and I think. The, the the struggle for the community there is that given that their their numbers are just starting to establish they don't have the same level of um you know they, they don't have the same level of of involvement or legitimacy within you know kind of the the power structures within australia to advocate um you know effectively and i think that that some of the leaders in the community and from what we've seen and what i've seen in terms of the rhetoric or or some of the narratives is that you have committee community leaders who feel like they need to relent or they need to somehow, um, you know, find a compromise rather than kind of asserting um, what they think is is truly what the sick requirement is, and that's been really disappointing to see because. They can point to examples in Canada. They can point to examples around the world. Instead, what they're trying to do is appease um, the people that are in power. and And that's a really difficult negotiation position to be in when you're sitting down in those rooms and having those conversations. There should be no negotiation on this. and it's it's been heartening to see a worldwide effort to actually put forward um, you know, th- their positions on this and and kind of support the Australian community in not backing down.
0: Next up, we're gonna talk about Bill 21. If you've been following the World Tech Organization's lobbying efforts, this has been one of the biggest challenges we've been pacing, facing in the past couple of years. Bill 21 is a bill that was passed in Quebec that says that folks who have overt religious symbols are not allowed to serve in public roles. So if you have a kapa or a niqab or a hijab or a dastard or a keski, you can't be in a role like a teacher or a police officer or a judge. There have been cases that have pushed back against this, and the World Sick Organization, and specifically Amrit Gore from our Quebec team, were interveners in a case where uh, we had some pretty awesome legal representation in Quebec, including Fazlalani, who um, we did a whole panel with folks about Bill 21. We actually, it was really cool. We had a um, deputy mayor from France who uh, is a sardar and he brought his perspective from France as well. So the last biggest development in Bill 21 um, was that within the Quebec courts, in the Quebec Superior Court, they upheld most of the law and they struck down parts of it. So they said that it, for example, it doesn't apply in the English school board, just in the French one. At the heart of this is um Quebec saying that they want to preserve the idea of laïcité which is different than just secularism as we understand it in English. It becomes an issue of identity. I would argue that it becomes it's, it's an issue of fear of the unknown um, and fear of the known, but it's a very complicated thing. So that's where we're at right now. Um and and both sides are saying because it wasn't a uh, like a completely one way decision. It upheld some of it. It struck down some of it. Both sides are saying that that's going to go to, that they're going to appeal it. So most likely this is going to end up bill 21 is just going to get pushed and pushed until it uh, ends up in the Supreme court. Um, What, what are your, what's your lawyer perspective on this?
1: Well, you know, it's tough to kind of separate, um, you know, the the lawyer hat from the, you know, sick advocate (laughs) hat because bill 21, it, it's very, very, you know, it's it's one thing to, to try to understand what the motivation um, of the Quebec government was. But it's pretty apparent what the motivation is. This is a law against religious freedoms aimed at minorities. You know, the judges themselves agreed that there's harm being done. And it's harm that's being done to Quebecers who wear religious symbols. And one of the justices even remarked that, you know, this is... It's apparent that fundamental rights are being violated, and particularly the rights of of Muslim women who wear the hijab, of of sick uh, women, of of sick men, and it it's shocking that you know right now, we're we're in a state where the onus and the obligation to fight against this is on the minority communities themselves, you know, with for WSO, for NCCM, for Canadian Civil Liberties Associations, like, you know, the, the onus is on us to actually fight back and assert uh, what our fundamental freedom should look like. F- frankly, to me, that's, that's you know, disgraceful in one way is the people who are suffering the most, and it's acknowledged that they're the ones who are being suffered, are the ones who have to go now and challenge this and take on the burden of actually fighting through the courts, um, which is what makes, you know, Justin Trudeau's remarks recently all the, that much more disheartening, um, where, you know, in, in light of a lot of the recent issues that we've seen in society with hate crime on the rise, with um, anti-racism, and I know we're gonna touch on it, but, you know, the fact that federal uh, political leaders are not looking to Bill 21 as being, you know, one of the most overt examples of discriminatory, racist laws in this country is is mind-blowing. Bill 21 should be the focus of every single leader that is speaking out today when they talk about racism, when they talk about institutional racism. They need to open their minds to Bill 21. Almost 10 municipalities across this country have passed motions opposing Bill 21. That is a message that municipal leaders in this country are sending to our federal politicians. They're sending to Quebecers. They're sending to Quebec to say, this is not our Canada. These are not the rights that, you know, what you're infringing upon is, should not be, that we believe that that Bill 21 is literally goes contrary to what we understand our constitution to be read as. And I think given that you have so many people uh, that are engaged in this, that, that are, are of one mind, I mean, going back to it, with Quebec itself, you know, trying to hide behind um, laicite, trying to hide behind their own, their own, you know, sovereignty in some ways and, and, and evoking notwithstanding clause, like, they absolutely understand what they're doing. They absolutely understand that they're taking away rights from a minority group, but they don't care. Um, and for what purpose? You know, where is the benefit? that would accumulate to anybody else. This is It's solely done for political gain and it's disgusting in a lot of ways. Also makes it really disappointing why last federal election it never became an issue. Um, You know, all of these federal leaders that today are willing to go speak out about Bill 21, you had the opportunity last federal election. Um, You had the opportunity to address it and make it into uh, an issue, but you didn't. Um, You waited for bad things to happen. And I think that's, it, it's it comes back to your question. It, it's hard to to be um, objective, or you know, or, or look at this from a, a much more of a, a black and white legal lens because the impacts are so dire. We've created in our country religious refugees who've had to leave Quebec because they cannot uh, do uh, to work in the, the chosen profession. People who were born and raised in Quebec. The story of Amrit Gour is, is something that every Canadian should listen to. You know, she's someone and someone that we're, we're proud um, to have, you know, worked alongside as as members of the WSO board, someone who's been fearless in her fight, um, has actually, you know, has been um, such, such a vocal advocate and, and an advocate who says, I'm I'm a Quebecer. I, I grew up here. This is my mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. And I can't work. I can't do the job I chose to do, I went to school for. I mean, this is, this is a- a- absolute embarrassment for this country um, that we're in a situation where... You know, a federal our prime minister says that he doesn't think that Bill Twenty One requires, or or is a cause of of things like Islamophobia. You know, that to me is really where the focus should be.
0: Yeah, I agree with you completely. And and folks, if you haven't heard, I'm um, speak about her experience. So it definitely, I mean, it was in McLean's. You can find YouTube videos. She has become the WSO face for this fight. She's been very generous with her story. I am always in awe when I hear her speak and I'm quite floored by how much she loves being from Quebec and how much given the chance she would go back to be with her family and community and how much she values speaking French and um, language rights and it just it's really uh, not as straightforward as you think not everyone hates Quebec for doing this um, but I I echo what you said, it's gross, it's just gross, um, and it comes down to politics. And you can't, um, so basically, um, the Liberals are in a minority government right now, and Justin Trudeau is in Quebec. You can't, the way that they're showing um, numbers and stuff, it, it, you can't really do anything if you don't have Quebec on your side. Um, so this is from a CBC article on Justin Trudeau's comment on this, Um So it's um, so it says although federal liberals held on to thirty five seats in twenty nineteen in the province the Bloc Quebecois nipped at their heels surging in popularity as they marched in policy lockstep with Francois Legault Um, so the the merging of the political uh, the federal and the provincial in Quebec has presented a real problem for the Liberals. And so Justin Trudeau, for purely political reasons, is not going to push back against Bill 21. What he's saying is he believes in uh, Quebec's right to determine their own laws. He believes in citizen rights to push back and test them in the courts. And that's happening. And he's not going to step in and he's going to make sure he stays away from it and lets it play out. When you think about the fact that this is a law in Canada in 2021, it's unreal it's absolutely unreal it's such overt racism it's so dangerous this was not the this is not the thing that you would wait to see how it played out in the courts and and my question would also be like what has he gained by by playing this middle of the road thing because even as he made those comments um folks in quebec and politicians in quebec were like stay in your lane everything he says is the wrong thing to say on both sides. He is losing people who think bill 21 is good. And he is losing people who think bill 21 is bad. So I would say, just pick a side, maybe pick the side of justice, maybe do something on your way out. Um, but that specifically to that comment that you mentioned, so there was the horrible attack in London, Ontario. Um, it was Islamophobia. A family was out for a walk and someone murdered them with their car. And in a press conference after this happened, somebody, one of the reporters asked Justin Trudeau, is there a connection between Bill 21 and Islamophobia? Like the the very violence, overt violence and murder and terrorism that we are seeing um, with fellow Canadians. And he said no. He Like you can see the clip and he says no. And then he just pauses like it's such a firm and confident no. Um, Harmon, do you think there's a connection between Bill 21 and Islamophobia?
1: Absolutely, and I don't know how anyone could possibly right? suggest otherwise. It makes no sense. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It's, it, 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 it's 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 one of those aspects of you know Bill Twenty One. It it's so overtly the law itself is so overtly Islamophobic, um, and and one of the 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 biggest parts is just the normalization of the attacks on religious symbols. So you know, recently in Edmonton, we've seen an epidemic. Uh, an actual you know an absolute explosion in attacks um you know violent attacks on muslim women and and women who wear the hijab um, being you know and and they're being attacked in broad daylight um going for walks they they're in fear of their lives and and this was you know pre london attack you know we've seen such a rise in, in islamophobia in this country anti asian violence um and racism these are these are serious problems, and for for all of these, uh, you know, and for Justin Trudeau to suggest that you know Bill Twenty One doesn't help normalize Islamophobia, doesn't help uh, enable uh, people who who have um, those types of views is absolutely ludicrous. You know, if, if you're going to say that, that means that you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention to, you know, the politicians who are standing on the other side who are supporting Bill 21 and listening to why they're supporting it. You're not paying attention, um, you know, to those motivations, those intentions, and those feelings. And that, I think, is the part that makes me look at, you know, the Prime Minister's remarks and say, you know, these are these are somebody who is completely tone deaf to the concerns that these communities are raising. They hear political rhetoric that helps to incite violence against them. And that rhetoric surrounds Bill 21 and has for however, you know, for the past several years. So for, for you know, the prime minister to suggest that, that, that there's no direct connection, you know, to me, there's nothing, there's, that, that is a huge betrayal um, of, you know, people and of the Muslim community.
0: And there are, I mean, as part of WSO, we get invited to a lot of consults for things and I've been a part of conversations on how to end hate. And it's a very strong thing to say. And uh, but I, I feel like I, it doesn't it's not useful to keep quiet on this. So much of the structure of the hate that we receive as six is provided by governments, be them federal or provincial, not so much municipal. We've had, yeah, good better um better experiences on the municipal level, I would say for myself anyways. Uh, but there's, like We were put on the terror list. We, uh, Bill 21 was put in place. If you want to talk about why it's okay in Canada to hate sex, to alienate sex, to consider sex terrorists... Where does hate come from in the sick experience? You can't have that conversation without mentioning what the government has done to support it. Um, and and as you mentioned, and I wanted to specifically share this as well, because this is a sick Canadian podcast. There is a Punjabi um, minister in Alberta whose 25-year-old daughter was attacked in downtown Calgary, and it was a hate crime. So this is definitely something that is um, the Islamophobia is a unique experience for Muslims and, and the way that experience people are going to experience this violence is going to be different across communities, but in no way are Sikhs being exempt from this.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Rajan Sani, who is a minister of community services here in Alberta, um, you know, seeing, seeing what happened with her daughter was absolutely devastating. Um, and you know, now in Edmonton, we've just learned about, Uh, months-long harassment and overt racism that's being targeted at a Gurdwara and a gurukan here in Edmonton where someone is, you know, sending deliveries of meat constantly. Uh, If someone is making harassing phone calls, racist phone calls, um, you know, it's, it's extremely disheartening. And I, I think back to several years ago, you know, it was maybe about six years ago when one of the Gordoré in Edmonton was targeted with some graffiti. And I remember the time when we spoke with the, you know, Gordoré, uh, Nemande and the, uh, the committees, their whole goal was, you know, Harmon, make this go away. We don't want to talk to the media. We don't want to make this into an issue. And and now I think there's an acknowledgement that, no, we do need to actually report these issues. We do need to bring awareness to this because these issues then continue to escalate. And the violence and the possibility of violence is just continuing to escalate. And, you know, the, the attack and what happened in London, Ontario, really hit home for a lot of people. You know, I, I can say for myself personally and a lot of my friends even before the attack when we walk uh, across the street with our kids like we look at the cars that are slowing down you know you're you're trying to see who that person is and and for days after that attack i know a lot of people who who did not feel comfortable going outside with their children that's the type of fear that a lot of people are living in right now and and you know while we're hearing you know encouraging statements from from politicians, in terms of finding solutions, we need to hear, you know, from from other Canadians when it comes to protecting and standing up for for minorities in this country. Um, but you know, coming back to the the Gortwara where you know. Potentially, in the past, we've not been willing to, to actually report these. There is there is an understanding that yes, we do need to move forward. We do need to bring attention to these issues, and we need the government, the federal government, to, to cha- look at the definition of hate crimes, because we can't have legislation that makes it so difficult to actually levy, um, you know, hate crime charges when it's very apparent that the motivation is is racial or or, or, or um, you know intended with with this purpose to intimidate and and produce fear. Um, and and I think that's that's going to be part of the important conversation uh, moving forward. But yeah, for for Sikhs, you know, w- we we need to show and and it, and I think it's really really important for us to to have solidarity and show solidarity with with the the Muslim community. And and it's been nice to see you know Sikh motorcycle clubs across this country uh, rallying for not only Muslims but for the indigenous, um, and you know for you know these Armar graves that have been coming up at as residential school sites. um they've been they've been doing long um, you know rallies for uh, to go show solidarity. And I think that's that's a positive step. And I think that's what six need to to continue focus on is showing some solidarity with some of these communities that are that are vulnerable right now
0: and finally, as we are wrapping up this episode's podcast, I want to check in and see how you are doing. We are recording. On what is Canada Day? It's been an interesting conversation around Canada. Um, I, everyone has been contributing. Um, I'm a big CBC listener. I know they've had all Canadians from all walks of life talking about um, what they're going to be doing today. It's been a quiet day in our neighborhood. Uh, Toronto has been quite loud. There was a Every Child Matters rally. This has been. Last couple months, um, we have heard announcement after announcement of unmarked graves of Indigenous children who went to residential schools, who were stolen, who were put in residential schools as an act of genocide, and who never came home. What is the conversation in your six circles? What is What are those conversations sounding like?
1: You know, there's and this is the struggle, and and i'll I'll be very honest about you know, kind of some of the the perspective, which is there's a lot of people who are newcomers or, or a lot of people who who look at this and are really grateful to be Canadians. Um, you know, I did read your wonderful piece in Boz. um and and for them, they're they're conflicted because they're very, you know, for they've not been able to actually reconcile some of the conflict that exists with the history of, you know, the Canadian project as this kind of genocidal um, regime with the fact that, you know, there is this um, comfort and, and it's been great to them and it's supported them to be able to have a platform. Um, so, there, you know, there, there is a, a lot of celebration um, and, and feeling of, you know, the gratefulness to be in, in this country. But I think some of it is also driven by the fact that, that there's not as much awareness of some of these issues um, that exist in some of the, the legacy of of um, what's happened with residential schools. So, you know, personally, I think, you know, there's going to be a much more muted Canada Day this year, um, one that, that's not going to be filled with celebration and, and fireworks, but at the same time, I think there's a conflict that our community is is kind of working through when it comes to how to approach Canada today.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, I do work that I label as anti-oppressive, and I am in an echo chamber of people who are radical and who are academics and who are activists, and the in those spaces and and quite rightfully so, the insistence is on not using that space to reflect on yourself and your own thoughts. And so when you are in indigenous spaces and when you are um, doing that work and that activism, it's about centering the voices and the stories and the pain of those folks and their families. I think places like Boz, places like this podcast are the other places, the internal places for sick dialogue and we need to have very different conversations. So, whereas I would never talk about this nuance and the many sick experiences, and that some people might just just might not know um, in those circles, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say, "Oh, but you know what? What about the international student who's hearing a land acknowledgement for the first time? How is that person supposed to be saying the right thing?" I won't say that in those circles. I will say that here, and I'm finding that if we are going to make this real conversation in the Sikh community. It has to meet people where they are. It has to understand the range of Canadian Sikh experiences and do something at every point. So I think everyone can add something. Um, This year was, and after the first set of Unmarked Graves was found, was the first time I think I had an honest conversation with my parents about residential schools. And it was um, very one-on-one questions. And my parents have been here for almost 40 years, and they were doing what they needed to do to survive, to survive the Indian state, to survive the violence that was in Punjab, to survive here, the racism and the violence of being... Um, brown people in canada to to put food on the table and to put us in school and to do all of that and they kept their heads down and they did what they needed to and they didn't they weren't privy to these conversations people weren't having these conversations in punjabi or they weren't having them in a way that my parents would necessarily understand and my mom like i might have so much respect for my mom and when When we had that conversation, she didn't miss a beat. She completely understood why we're not celebrating Canada Day. Uh, She chose not to celebrate this year. Um, She did ask questions like, wait, why wouldn't they, why would the parents let the kids go to the school? Didn't the parents ask where the kids were? Like it was, and we talked through it and that to me was really important. And I think that's more important than yelling at someone in a social media post because they didn't use the correct words. Because that kind of stuff doesn't create change. But I think if, I mean, I work with international students through World Psych Organization, and we make sure that the conversation of whose land we're on is a part of our student orientations and a part of our faculty trainings. Um, We were, just in my life with the people who are in my family, That becomes a conversation, and it has to be one that happens without shame, without judgment, without expectation that someone will say the right thing the first time that you have that conversation. Um, But I got to say, like, for so many reasons, mostly because I I go to bed at 830 and my dog hates fireworks, I am totally okay with um, sitting this one out, but it's also a, a way, way bigger um, conversation. And I'm going to add in here, um, as a member of the world Sick organization, I sit on an interfaith committee with Toronto council fire. So if you ever Google Toronto native council fire, they are responding to, so the truth and reconciliation commission in Canada put forward calls to action. And one of the calls to action was that every major city in Canada should have a monument that it uh, shows respect to survivors of residential schools. So this um, council fire is doing that and WSO is supporting and Gunthas is on that committee with me and I'm on that committee as well. Um, Check it out. It's called the uh, Restoration of Identity Project. You can make a donation if you're moved to do so um but it's this incredible if you know Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto uh behind the Snack Shack like if you ever go skating in that area that whole area is going to be home to this beautiful turtle there's a, a indigenous artist who has created this sculpture there's going to be a canoe there's going to be a learning area um it was last time I checked it was over a 4 million dollar project but it's going to be incredible space for indigenous people and for settlers to honor survivors of residential schools, to remember the kids that never came home and to continue learning. It's gonna be an active learning space. So we can take our calls to school kids, we can take our own families and we can definitely use and interact with that space. So check it out, it's the Restoration of Identity Project with Toronto Native Council Fire. Okay, so that's everything for us for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you Harmon. for, uh, what do you make? This is your first time co-hosting.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to future episodes if I made the cut. Awesome. So
0: <laughs> you make the cut. So we are. Um, this can be my my regular shout out to people. World Sick Organization is a couple of paid employees and a lot of volunteers with hearts of gold. Um, so we can't do what we do without you. All of everything costs money. The battle against Bill Twenty One, supporting um, sex all over the world. Everything that we talked about today. So if you heard something you like, please head on over. To the World Tech Organization website, you can make a one-time donation, or we have a this one program where you can give every month. That's everything from us, and we'll catch you next month. Waigurjika kalsa,